This morning's reading is Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His words run swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. This is the word of God. Our Father God, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts as we hear your word, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. If they made a movie of your life, who would play you? Who would play you? I asked my wife uh, this question, probably not a wise idea, um, but we men, we like to delude ourselves. Who would she choose? Colin Farrell? It's not going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger, I get that, but you know, get a bit of grey hair now, maybe, maybe she'd go for George Clooney. You know what she said? Sandra Bullock. <laughs> Seriously, where is the respect? Um, but let me ask you a much more important question than who would play you in your life. What sort of movie do you think it would be? Do you think it would be a movie with a happy ending? Well, he was born. Nothing very spectacular happened for a number of years, and then he died. Or do you think it would be a feel-good film, one sort of bursting with life and hope and excitement that leaves you walking on air as you leave the cinema? How do you think the movie of your life will end? What will the final tone be? This psalm tells us that if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the movie will have a wonderful ending. Let's look at it together. Firstly, verse 1. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. Have you ever wondered why on earth the psalms are so excited about praising God? It seems a bit odd that in his word, God is always demanding that we praise him. It's always telling us to praise him. 
Now, it is not because God is vain and egotistical like some insecure celebrity and just has to have this entourage around him telling him, you're wonderful, you're so good, you're wonderful. You see, it is because God loves you that he tells you to praise him. Because God is the most supremely beautiful, admirable, exciting, fulfilling, satisfying being in all creation. Nothing compares to the joy, the contentment, and the happiness that is found in knowing the God of the Bible. And because he loves us, he wants us to enjoy what is the most enjoyable thing in all existence. To find contentment in what will satisfy our hearts more than anything else. If you love someone, you you want to give them things that will make them happy. The first year we were married, I gave my wife as her main Christmas present an alarm clock. Yeah, I like to think we've both learned a lot from the experience. Uh, I now know, I understand. I understand now, if she's going to like the present, I have to think it is overpriced, pointless, and of no practical value at all, but rather pretty. If it meets those three criteria, she'll be happy. God loves to give his children good gifts, and the difference is that God is your creator. He made us, and therefore God knows what we need, and what will bring us deep delight and joy. And as our creator, he designed us to find greatest fulfillment in knowing him. And so again and again, his word calls us to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to praise him. You see, if God called on us to look elsewhere for it, for delight, if God said, oh, don't praise me, don't find delight in me, don't find ultimate fulfillment in me, he'd actually be calling us to second best. He'd be selling us short if he said, find your fulfillment in career, build your life on family, make exotic holidays the thing that's your deepest joy. It's not surprising, actually, when you remember who God is. He is the the never-created, always-existing creator of the entire universe. He doesn't get any better. He'll never improve at all from how he is now because he's already perfect. And because he's perfect, he'll never get worse. He'll always be the ultimate, beyond our imagination. And he is the happiest being in existence. His delight as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying relationship with one another, is the purest delight in our universe. And God in his kindness calls us to join his family. He adopts us in to share that beautiful, joy-soaked, happy relationship. Okay, great, so God's enjoyable, but why tell us to praise him rather than just enjoy him? C.S. Lewis put it best, he said, why praise God? He said, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes enjoyment. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. In other words, you enjoy things more when you express the delight. Yesterday, Arsenal won the FA Cup. Had to get that in. They more than just won it. They romped home. They destroyed Villa. Any Villa fans are very welcome here this morning. Uh, But it was wonderful as an Arsenal fan. But I watched it on my own. My wife is no fan of the football. I have a good friend who's going to be here this evening and gloating horribly, who was at Wembley. Who do you think enjoyed the game more? He was surrounded by other people, shouting his head off, singing himself hoarse. He was able to praise out loud everything that happened. 
There is something about praising, about expressing our delight that makes it so much better. Sitting at a wedding, checking the text updates is just nothing like standing in a pub and shouting your head off at the screen. You know it's true, and the Bible therefore says praise God, not just enjoy God, but praise God, because we enjoy him more when we praise him. And the psalmist tells us in verse 1, praise God, how fitting it is to praise him. And then we get three sections, each beginning with a call to praise, and then each giving us a reason to praise. So firstly, uh, praise God, he's glorious and he's good. Verses 1 to 6, praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the exiles of Israel, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Verse 2, why should we praise God? Well, God builds up Jerusalem. Uh, That is the city where his people are safe. Uh, He's pictured here actually as the builder who makes the walls massive and impregnable so that we're secure. But he's also the one who goes out on search and rescue to look for those who are lost and hurting. Verse 3, having rescued his people, battered and broken by the ravages, well, both of our own sin, but also of what can be a painful and a brutal world, he tenderly bandages and nurses us. He knows the sorrows and pains of our hearts, and this is the God who makes us whole, who restores us. Verse 4, he is the mind-boggling creator, He is the one who made the stars. I love London, but one of the joys of getting out of London occasionally is that uh, at night time, if it stops raining and the clouds part, you can see the stars. And you can't in London. And on a really clear night, and if you get far enough away from the light pollution, you'll see there's a sort of dusty strip across the middle of the sky, which is the Milky Way. And what you're looking at, if you look at that dusty strip, is between two and four hundred billion stars. And that is one galaxy in the observable universe out of an estimated 80 billion galaxies. Or if the numbers just don't work for you, imagine if you covered the entire surface of the earth with one pound coins, and then you stacked them up to the height of Canary Wharf Tower. Whole earth covered in one pound coins, stacked up to the height of Canary Wharf Tower. That is about how many stars God has made. If you picked one of those coins out at random, pick one star at random, God knows its name. God created everything and yet he knows it intimately. One star out of seven septillion and he knows its name. Verse 5. Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. In other words, he's both mighty in power and in understanding. He's no sort of weedy brain box, but nor is he a great hulking beefcake with a zero IQ. He is a God who is both immensely intelligent and immensely powerful. And verse 6, he's morally good too. He sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. He sustains the humble, that is, those who don't arrogantly assume we know best, but who turn to God for truth and for guidance, and who trust God's word, even when our culture gives us a very, very different answer. And while the humble can count him as their friend and defender, he 
will be a judge who casts down the wicked of the world. Now, it is a struggle as you look through these verses to work out what on earth is the theme of them. You know, what is the, the, the unifying concept? So what point do you, you know, put on the service sheet for these verses? And I think in one sense that is perhaps the point. God is the supreme being. He is the perfect one and he's excellent in every way. See, the gods of the pagan nations, they were basically one-trick ponies. You had to sacrifice to one god to make your business go well, another god to ensure the car runs, another god to ensure your kids behave, another god to make sure your team wins. It was basically, they all dealt with one thing. But the god of the Bible is a Tesco out-of-town superstore god. Everything you need is in him. Everything. Absolutely everything. He's the far-off creator who's unimaginably powerful. He's the one who tenderly binds up broken hearts. He is the one who generously provides those who humbly look to him, but he's also the mighty one who overthrows the wicked. In other words, there is only one God, and he is absolutely worth praising, for he is the God of everything and everyone. Secondly, praise God, he delights in those who trust in him. Uh, Look at verses 7 to 11. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. There is an explicit call to music, do you see in verse 7, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, make music to our God on the harp. Because sometimes prose is not enough. It is just not enough when God is this good to stand in church and recite creeds. You've got to sing sometimes. Because God is, he is beyond praise. He is a God of song because he does things to for us that are so good our hearts have to praise him. And then two sets of verses tell us uh, why to praise him. Eight to nine um, talks about his provision for creation. He covers the sky with clouds and provides the earth with rain, makes the grass grow and then provides food for the cattle and the ravens. In other words, every drop of rain that falls on the earth is sent by God. And every time an animal eats on this earth, it is being fed by God. And because of that, there is no place for pride in any of God's creatures. Not even in the pinnacle of his creation, in man, verse 10. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Now for years, every summer, I've had to put up with comments about my skinny legs. Every time the shorts come out... Somebody asks if I have to wear skis in the shower or says, last time this or legs like that, they were hanging from a nest. I've heard them all. It won't be new. It won't be new. I promise you. I'm a big fan of verse 10. Listen to the word of God, you muscly-legged men. His pleasure is not in the legs of a man. Now, there is nothing wrong with the legs of men or the horses that people ride on. The point of verse 10 is in verse 11. Strong legs and horses are are things that men took pride in. Um, you'll, have, you'll have heard the, the reading at the start of the service. A, a different version is, uh, instead of um, just horse, military horses or war horses. It's, it's military imagery. It's saying, don't trust in the things that humans look to and say, we'll be all right because we have. 
You know, the May Day parades in Moscow with those great uh, military machines going up the, the Red Square. We are a powerful nation for we have this. And we all do it on a small scale. Some of us, it is our, our physical bodies. Others of us, it's our bank balances. Others of us, it's our intellect. Others of us, it's our, our great moral record. But we have things we look to that make us think, I am valuable. I'm going to be all right in the future. I mean something because of what I've done, what I have. But God's delight is in those who trust not in their strength, but in his faithful love. Now, it really ought to be an obvious point. Who gave you your muscly legs? God. Who put you in a country which is secure and stable? God. All we have is a gift from him, so we can never take pride in any of the things that we, we have with our hands. If we're happy, wealthy, and secure, it's because God has blessed us with those things. And here we come to the heart of what it means to know and enjoy God in verse 11. He delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. To fear God is simply to recognize he is creator, I am creature. He is up there, I am down here. That's what it means to fear God. To treat God as God and me as mortal. And the crucial point is, how do you please a God who needs nothing from you? How do you serve a God who's given you even the things that you might offer him? By hoping in him. By trusting him. By thanking him, by praising him, and by enjoying him. The writer John Piper, who's going to be speaking at the Revive weekend in a couple of weeks' time, says, look, there's a difference between a mountain spring and a, and a, a water trough. You honor a water trough by carrying buckets of water up the mountain and keeping it full. You don't honor a mountain spring by carrying buckets of water up and pouring them into it. It doesn't need them. It's a spring. It produces water. You honor a spring by falling on your knees and lapping up the water and enjoying it and delighting in it and thanking the owner of the the mountain for, for letting you drink from that spring. God is not a drinking trough who needs us to serve him. He's a mountain spring who delights when we recognize our need and we enjoy him and satisfy ourselves with him. Trust in his unfailing love, not in your strength and merit. That is, in one sense, a principle that applies to all of our dealings with God, but nowhere does it apply more than when we think about our sin. The confession that we, we went through earlier with the children. Where is our hope that God will forgive us when we say sorry for the times when we've lived as if we are the the central character in existence. Well, I've always tried to do what's right. My friends say I'm a good moral person. I come along to church every now and then. I'm not, you know, massively religious or regular, but I do come along when I can, as if God should be impressed by the fact that I believe in him and I'm not a criminal. No, our hope is in his unfailing love. And a thousand years after this psalm was written, God's unfailing love took flesh and became a person, Jesus Christ. And he became a person so he could die on a cross to pay for the punishment of all the selfish things we've done, from when we were children and stole toys to when we were adults and we have acted as if the world is ours and not God's. 
And perhaps this morning will be the moment for some here when we stop vainly pretending, trying to act as if we're all right with God, desperately hoping, striving, pretending that all is good, and instead turn to the wonderful assurance of leaning not on what I might do, but on what Jesus has already done to pay for my sin. Praise God, he's glorious, and he's good, and he delights in those who trust in him and what he has done. Thirdly, praise God, he reveals his word to his people. Verses 12 to 14 really repeat the theme of trust. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He's a God who provides all we need. But then one theme dominates the end of the psalm, and that is the word of God. Verse 15. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He's revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He's done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Do you see how 15 to 18 say God rules nature? Okay, but why tell us that? Verse 15 says that God rules the world by his word. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. And then he says uh, effectively in 16 to 18 that his word runs like the, the rain or the snow that goes down on the earth from the heavens. Now Psalm 19 talks of two books, if you like. Uh, the book of nature and the book of law. Two books that reveal the truth about God to us. God speaks to us in creation. It it bears his fingerprints. The natural world makes it very clear there is a creator. Things don't just appear from nothing. There is a creator. The natural world also shows us that he is, this creator must be glorious and mighty. But there's only so much you can know about God through the created world. If you like, you can know of God through the physical creation. But it is only through his word, when he speaks, that we can know God. And the privilege of Israel was that God spoke to them. He called them out of Egypt and he spoke his word to them. So creation tells us enough about God that all the peoples of the world, all the cultures, are groping around in darkness with their own ideas of of some sort of deity figure. But God spoke. To Israel. He gave them clarity, relationship, knowledge of him. And so verse 20 says, he's done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. But, but God's plan revealed from the start was always that through Israel, the other nations would see what it is to live in relationship with God. And that through Israel, they would hear the word that God had spoken to Israel would be spoken by Israel to the nations. So that all people, even people living in London, would hear the truth about God in Jesus Christ. Because God's longing is not just that one small group might praise him in one small place but that all the world would resound with the praise of the God who made the world. 
Psalm 147 is full of wonderful truths about God. Wonderful truths that that tell us why to praise God, but... But it is Psalm 147, not Psalm 7. And you only really fully grasp what's going on in this psalm when you understand why it is where it is. You see, the last five psalms, look down with me, uh, from 146 onwards, they all begin, 146, praise the Lord, 147, praise the Lord, 148, praise the Lord, 149, praise the Lord, 150, praise the Lord. And within those psalms, there are no prayers asking God for things. There are no cries of distress. There's no confession of sin. All the focus is just on praise. Psalm 146 is sort of individual praise. Uh, 147, we're just looking at communal praise as the people of God praise him. 148, creation praise God. 149, kingdom praise. And then 150, everything that has breath praise the Lord. The book of Psalms finishes with five Psalms of unbroken, total, complete praise. And the compiler who put the book together in this way is telling us something awesome and reassuring and encouraging, something that you and I need to hear as we make our way through life in this world. It is something that will give you joy and faith and courage if you get it. He's telling you that whether life is easy or hard right now, If you trust in Jesus, you are assured that at the end, there will be an eternal future of unbroken praise and delight. There will be a happy ending. But it won't be an ending. The movie will go on and on and on. And I don't know what scene is being played out in the movie of your life right now. In the first 145 Psalms, there's pretty much everything you can imagine. Uh, There are wedding psalms and funeral psalms. There's happiness and mourning, agony and delight, and despair and depression and celebration of rescue. There is everything. But the last five psalms say, whatever life is like right now, because God is the sort of God we've been learning about in Psalm 147, because God is this sort of God, If you trust him, there is an eternal future of unbroken, swelling, deepening, ever richer, ever more exciting praise and joy and delight. Even if the movie of your life has dark, depressing scenes, even if it seems hopeless at times, I don't know whether it's uh, grueling struggles with chronic health problems, whether it's uh, the bitterness of a toxic marriage, or the despair of long-term unemployment or financial pressure that just never lets up, or the disappointment just that life hasn't quite worked out the way we sort of assumed it would. Whatever you're going through right now, if you trust in Jesus, the final note will be praise. And that note won't stop. It'll carry on for all eternity as God remakes a world for us to live in and never die in. Imagine if uh, you stopped the the final Lord of the Rings movie. Uh, Some here probably wish it had never even been made, but uh, for those who like that sort of thing, imagine if you stopped that movie before Frodo had destroyed the ring. Or if The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when it was read to you, um, it finished with Aslan being killed on the stone table. 
Or you watch The Shawshank Redemption and the movie ended before Andy Dufresne escaped from prison. What sort of movie, what sort of book, what sort of story would you conclude it was if it ended then? You'd conclude it was depressing, (laughs) hopeless, total despair. Imagine if the Bible ended at Good Friday. But you see, everything changes with the final scene. When the evil ring is destroyed, when Aslan comes back to life, when Andy Dufresne escapes, when Jesus rises from the dead on Easter Sunday, everything changes. The final scene changes the whole character of the movie. And in fact, the ending is that much more joyful because there's been darkness and despair and hopelessness. Because you you thought, I cannot see how this can ever be redeemed. And yet it is. And I do not know what scene is being played out in your life right now. And for some of us, it is really, really dark. For others of us, things are good. But for some of us, there will be days of utter hopelessness and pain and despair. But in finishing the Psalms with five unbroken Psalms of praise, the Bible is proclaiming with absolute authority and joyful assurance that if you trust in Jesus Christ, God is this sort of a God, a Psalm 147 God, and he is preparing for you a future when you will know him perfectly, when the creation will match the character of God and all will be delight and joy and will go on getting better and richer and deeper for all eternity. And because God is this sort of God, a Psalm 147 God, and because your destiny, your future, if you trust in Christ, is an eternity with the Psalm 147 God, you and I are free to give ourselves, to give our time, to give our money, confident that there is an eternity coming which will make up for everything we sacrifice, for every pain we suffer, for everything we forego for the sake of God down here. And this new creation, this eternal future, will make it all worthwhile. The final scene will change everything. And you and I will praise God for all eternity. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the glorious truths we learn about you in this psalm. We thank you that you're a God worth praising. We thank you most of all that there is a day coming when you will redeem creation, when everything will change, and when the world will match what you are like, and we will find ourselves without another tear to cry forever, without another bit of suffering or disappointment, or disillusionment. We thank you that in Christ our future is perfect, unbroken praise. And we pray that now, as we look forward to that day, you would help us in faith to praise you. Amen.